One of our values as a church is inescapable mission. I love this two-word phrase, inescapable mission. While COVID has certainly slowed down how often we have our global partners share what's happening in Argentina and Portugal and the Philippines and other parts of the world, mission is still a big part of who we are as a church. Every week, we pray for one of our mission partners. A significant portion of our annual budget goes to global missions. And we're always looking for different ways to be more involved, whether that's devotionals, gatherings on Zoom, or another number of areas. There's incredible power and encouragement when we hear stories of lives being transformed and eternal destinies being changed because of the work our missionaries are doing all around the world. We celebrate together when we hear of how a church has started with just a few families and how it grows to 50 people and out of how that very same church, someone is trained to be a pastor, care for that group of people, and the missionary moves on to another place and starts all over again. We praise God that these stories aren't just happening in other parts of the world, but they're happening right here in our local context. Our biggest evangelistic efforts as a church typically take place through special events in a ministry called Alpha that helps people explore Christianity in a safe and welcoming environment. Just last week, I had the privilege of talking to a man on the phone who came to faith through one of our Alpha classes. Almost in tears, he said to me, I've experienced the love and freedom that Jesus has to offer, and I just want to know more. This is inescapable mission. This is who we are as a church, and this is what we believe. It's also the gospel we need to preach to ourselves. Luke 15 is a deeply meaningful and deeply personal passage of scripture for me. Luke 15 has this powerful, inescapable mission story told by Jesus. The son asks his dad for his inheritance, which basically means, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me some money so I can start my own life. Surprisingly, the dad agrees, and the son leaves town with a wallet full of cash and not a care in the world. After spending all his money on reckless living, a severe famine comes across the land. And with no money, no work, the only job this man can find was feeding pigs for a local farmer. Rock bottom for any Jew who knows to refrain from pork. Setting aside his pride, he decides to go back home and ask his dad for a job among the servants just for a place to lay his head and food for his stomach. But much to his surprise, his dad comes running out to meet him with an enormous hug, kisses him on the cheek, wraps him in a cloak of honor, and calls for a feast to celebrate. A beautiful story of the extravagant love of God. We might expect the story to end there, but it doesn't. Jesus continues by sharing about the older son. The son was out working in the field, and as he came home, he heard the feasting and the music and the dancing, and he quickly learned that his younger brother had come home and the party was for him. But rather than being thankful for this surprising turn of events, he becomes bitter, resentful. He wants nothing to do with his dad. The father hears about this and comes out to his older son and reminds him that everything in this house is his, but it's not enough. Even though the older son has never left the father's house, has obeyed all the rules, we're left wondering if he ever turns his heart back to the father. The good news all of us need to hear, whether we're already followers of Jesus or not, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, is whatever is taking place in our lives, it's never too late to turn back to God. 
We're currently going through the life of David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. And if you'd like to follow along with us, you can open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 27. Whether you have a physical Bible, an app on your phone or tablet, or engaging with church online platform, there's numerous ways for you to follow along. If you're new to church, 1 Samuel's an Old Testament book, which means it happens before the life of Jesus. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. As you're turning to 1 Samuel 27, allow me to set the scene. David has been anointed as the next king of Israel. Normally, we would celebrate this good news, but it comes a little bit of a problem. The current king of Israel, Saul, is still alive and he's sitting on the throne. Saul knows God's anointing has left him. The same man who anointed Saul is the same man who anointed David. And the same man tells Saul that the anointing has left him and he has been rejected from the throne. As you can imagine, that doesn't exactly sit well with Saul. And rather than accepting this news and repenting of his mistakes, he gets angry and sets out to hunt David down and to kill him. But we don't have a definitive timeline as to how long this manhunt goes on for. Most scholars would agree it's been at least five years. Five years of David running away. Five years of hiding in caves. Five years of close calls with his life on the line. Even though David has shown his faithfulness to Saul by sparing his life not just once, but twice, Saul continues to pursue him and hunt him down. So how does David respond? Let's read chapter 27. But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I might live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the, Ger the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. And whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive. But he took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jerahimil, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, where he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. This narrator is almost like an expert witness in a court of law. He doesn't make a single comment surrounding the morality of David's decisions. As the readers, we look at these opening verses and see how David, along with 600 men and their wives and their children, left Israel and went to Philistia. And we're left wondering, is this a good idea or a bad idea? The narrator never tells us. Then we move on a little further and find David acting like a very loyal servant to Achish and saying, my Lord, my men and I, along with all our families, don't want to be a burden to you. Please give us a place of our own. Narrator 
makes no comment. Finally, we read that David and his men began to raid neighboring tribes, kill all the people who are present, and keep the livestock and resources for themselves. Only to lie and tell Achish that these riches came from Israel and not the supporting factions. Once again, the narrator is silent. Were these good decisions? Were they bad decisions? Is this about the art of war and the greater good? If you have your Bibles in front of you and scan these 11 verses, one thing you'll notice is a complete absence of divinity in this chapter. No mention of God, no mention of Lord or Yahweh, just an expert witness telling you exactly what took place. And if you don't know the story, these seem like really good decisions. Remember, it's been at least five years that David's trying to keep his army and their family safe and happy. Not easy when you're hiding in caves and scrounging for food. To know you have a safe night's sleep and keep at least a thousand people happy, you're doing good work. David must think he is totally right and completely justified by this decision. By the time we hit verse 4, we read, When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Mission successful. But something doesn't quite feel right. Reading between the lines, you can almost hear the narrator be sympathetic to David, but not willing to justify his conduct. In a vacuum, chapter 27 feels like it has moral ambiguity. When we broaden the horizon, we start to see David was making some grave mistakes. For nine chapters and at least five years, God has been protecting David. God has been protecting David from Goliath, protecting him from Saul, protecting him from his spies and enemies. He's been protecting him in caves, protecting him in the wilderness, even protected him from his own men abandoning him. The prophet Samuel anointed him as the next king of Israel. The prophet Gad told him to stay in Judah and not to leave the land. And Saul, not once but twice, said, I know you will be the next king of Israel. And God will do great things. But this isn't a novel. This is real life. And David's exhausted. He has been on the run for years. He doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. He's not single anymore. There's over a thousand people relying on him for their livelihood. Can God really keep providing for him? Don't the Philistines, who've already rescued him once, offer a much easier and quicker solution? It feels like a suspense novel. It feels like that classic retired military professional who has all the right answers and all the right savvy and all the right skill to get even out of the worst mess. Those novels are great to read. But I wouldn't want to live it out. Would you? David just can't do it anymore. After years of being faithful to God and not killing Saul when he had the chance, he's tired of being on the run and he gets this get-out-of-jail-free card. So he takes it. And we get frustrated because we read the story or listen to the sermon and feel like yelling, that's not what you're supposed to do. Then we have a heart check because we realize we do the same things. We get mad at David because he reminds us of ourselves. We get mad at David because we look in the mirror and say, how long, God, do I need to be faithful? And we just want the easy way out. I'm not talking about walking away from God. I'm talking about making life just a little bit easier on yourself. We get into a fight with, your, with our spouse. But rather than working on making things right, we hop online and find some pictures of an old boyfriend or girlfriend. 
and spend more time looking through their profile than we know we should. Money's getting a little tight and you've just fixed your furnace and you've replaced your cracked windshield and there's no money to give to the church this month. And you know, if I pull back my giving a couple hundred dollars each month, it would really help the bottom line. One of the best parts of working from home is the boss isn't always looking over your shoulder. Oh, you could probably get away with an extended lunch, catch up on some housework, get off a little early, get in that run. Well, it's not really a work expense, but who would know if I claimed it? I used to miss living in community, but it's kind of nice not having people asking me those uncomfortable questions. Would anyone at the church really miss me if I never came back to in-person? I just keep watching with a cup of coffee in my hands. It all begins in verse one when David, when we read, David thought to himself. His own mistakes compiled as the moral ambiguity began. Let's see what happens next, verses one and two. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Akish replied, very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now we have a problem. David's lie about raiding the Israelite land and stealing livestock has led Akish to believe that all Israel will see him as a traitor. Combine David's military expertise along with the fighting men, the debt for saving him from Saul, and Akish believes, I have a bodyguard for life. How is David going to get out of this mess? Three to seven. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord. But the Lord didn't answer him. By dreams or Urim, or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. Okay, so this story about Saul sounds like it's going to be pretty good. But why is the author leaving us on such a cliffhanger with David? The Philistine army is on one side of the valley, the Israelites on the other side of the valley, and here's David, the beloved Israelite champion, standing with the enemy and Saul quivering on the other side. Why is the author doing this to us? The Netflix and YouTube generation won't remember this, but do you remember mid-90s watching your favorite TV show when all of a sudden there would be a little beep, the screen would come on, the announcer would say, we now interrupt our regularly scheduled program for a special message from the President of the United States. I remember sulking and flipping to a different channel, and the President was on that channel too. In fact, he's on all the channels. I didn't care what the President had to say. I wanted to know what happened in the rest of my Full House episode. But the point is clear. There's something much more important going on here. Listen closely. The author is placing everything in context. As bad as David's life is, Saul's life is much worse. As bad as David's life is, Saul's life is much worse. As difficult as your present circumstances might be, you know what would be terrible? If God abandoned you completely, 
Many of us are fighting intense levels of loneliness. Imagine if God left you as well. Anxiety and mental health issues are on the rise. What would it be like if we didn't have God to lean on and sustain you? I'm really sorry money is tight right now, but what if you were bankrupt of God? David's story is fascinating. Saul's story, we wish on no one. Let's see what happens next. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off all the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are the king Saul. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a spirit coming out of the ground. What does he look like? Saul asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. And Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we read of how the kings and leaders of Israel will do a portion of what God asks, but not everything God asks. God will ask them to kill a group of people. They'll just chase them away. God will ask them to burn animals as sacrifices. Instead, they'll add them to their own livestock. You get the point. The same thing happens here. In Leviticus 20, verse 27, we read, A man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist among you must be put to death. But instead of execution, Saul simply expels them from the land and obviously knew where they went, in case he needed them later on. Divination was common during this time. The Israelites were the only known people who actually outlawed the practice. God forbids Israel to seek out mediums and other fortune-telling people, not because they don't work, but because they are incredibly wicked. But here we are. As we read what Samuel says, listen to the repetition of the word Lord. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me. God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams. So I called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord to carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. Samuel speaks for four verses and mentions the Lord's name seven times. Whatever limits a witch normally has, the narrator fully believes this is Samuel's spirit called back from the dead, and the commentators I read agreed as well. So here is Samuel, the great prophet, the one who anointed Saul earlier in this book as the first king of Israel, is now telling Saul, the Lord's abandoned you. Even in a story with a witch, there is something even more fascinating that's taking place. You see, while certainly different circumstances, Saul and David actually find themselves in rather similar situations. 
Someone is seeking to kill David. Someone is seeking to kill Saul. David looks for hands, uh, for security in the hands of his enemies. Saul looks for security in the hands of the enemies. The difference, as we'll see in a few minutes, is how they respond. The rest of chapter 28. Immediately, Saul f- um, fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and night. When the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, Look, your maidservant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so you may eat and have the strength to go on your way. Saul refused and said, I won't eat. But his men joined the women in urging him, and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it, baked bread without yeast, and she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. That same night, they got up and left. In rather stunning irony, the medium speaks encouraging words and is acting more like a follower of God than Saul is. And the description of that final meal is also ironic. This meal is similar to a ceremonial royal meal for a king who has just learned that his kingship is lost. Saul seems resigned to accepting his death, and he simply walks away. Back to the scene of the battle. The Philistine kings have gathered with an army numbering thousands upon thousands, exhibiting this incredible show of force, while David and his men were marching near the back with a quiche, picking up in verse 3. The commanders of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? Our English translation doesn't quite pick up the level of disgust by which this question was asked. One commentator suggests this is the equivalent of calling them scavengers, scum, bootlickers who are just a menace to society. Akish replied, Is this not David, who is an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He has already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with him and said, Send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has killed the thousands and David his tens of thousands. At this point, it's probably fair to ask if Akish is the sharpest tool in the shed. Do you know this is actually the second time this famous line has been quoted to Akish? Back in chapter 21, when David fled to Gath for the first time, his own servants said to him, Do you know who you're welcoming into your house? Do you know what kind of songs are sung about this man? Do you really think this is a good idea? The Philistine lords are no stranger to the fame of the man who lives and works among them. They see the possible strategy here for Israel and want nothing to do with a potential backstabbing. But behind all of this trauma, something even greater is taking place. You can see the hand of the Lord at work as he keeps David from killing his Israelites. It would be awfully tough to be accepted as king of a people you just fought against. Akish's naivete and David axing skills are on full display in verses 6 to 10. Akish says, uh, calls David and says to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you've been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until now, I have found no fault in you. But the rulers don't approve of you. 
Turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. And David starts acting. What have I done? asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Nikesh answered, I know you've been as pleasing to me, even as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, how must he must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early, along with your master's servants who have come with you, and leave as soon as it's light. This is where the stories of David and Saul diverge. Both David and Saul have that person trying to kill them. Both David and Saul look for security in people who should be their enemies. But David's life is spared, and Saul's is not. Now, to be clear, this passage does not say that if we make mistakes, God will rescue us. Hopefully, Saul is proof of this. But it does show us that God is in control behind the scenes, and his will will most certainly be accomplished. Final chapter. David and his men were probably gone from Ziklag for about a week, and any relief they may have felt for uh, not having to fight their fellow Israelites has immediately turned to grief when they arrived back home. Picking up in verse 3, when David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. But David found strength in the Lord his God. As we started our story today, at first David's savvy and cunning seems to be working out great. Tired of being on the run from Saul year after year, David went to the Philistines and was warmly embraced. His men were happy. They didn't have to hide. Their families were grateful for a safe place to lay their heads. Soon they were given a land of their own. Everything was working out perfectly. But for this perfect life to continue, David had to give up part of his moral compass. He knew he was running away from God. He knew the lying would eventually catch up to him. And nobody can cover their tracks forever, especially knowing the truth would come out at some point. By God's providence, by God's intervening behind the scenes, David didn't have to enter the battle, but now his men are furious. Their families have been captured, their homes been burned, and they're emotionally wrecked. But it's never too late to turn back to God. God is the only one who can save him. There is no enemy who will help him. Wisdom only goes so far. He certainly wasn't going to go looking for a witch. He has to rely on God alone. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought to him, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in your rescue. The rest of the chapter shows us again the working of God's great providence, how he miraculously guides David to the raiding party, and they end up saving their families and collecting a plunder so large they give most of it away. And again, we see this beautiful picture of the extravagant love of God. Even though David is relying on his own wisdom, 
even though he looks to enemies for help, even though he lies and is about to get himself in a ton of trouble, it is never too late to turn back to God. Isn't that incredible news? Think about the cancel culture we live in right now, where people, especially celebrities, are too afraid to speak lest they offend somebody or lose their jobs. You supported the wrong political candidate. Canceled. You didn't share your political view. Canceled. Five years ago, you made a racist, sexist, ageist, bigoted joke. Canceled. Used the wrong pronoun. You had a DUI. You had a lapse in judgment. Canceled. 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 But then God shows up with arms wide open and says, it's never too late to come back home. Everybody is welcome. I want none to perish and everybody to come to eternal life. The beautiful, extravagant, incredible love of God. I don't know where you are in your walk with God right now. If you're in a really good place, share this news with others. Remind your friends and your family, it's never too late to turn back. But maybe life is throwing you a curveball or something worse. In texting one of my friends this week, he sent me a picture of a dumpster fire. What makes it even more funny as he works for a waste management company. Relationships are hard, high expectations at work, money is tight, you've made some bad decisions, the self-talk is increasingly negative. Whatever the case might be, it's never too late to turn back to God. Write it down, put it on your bathroom mirror, make it your mantra for the week. It's never too late to turn back to God. Isn't this great news? It's the beautiful picture that Jesus paints for us in Luke 15. It's the reminder that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. It's the beautiful, extravagant, incredible love of God that welcomes us with open arms and says, my son, my daughter, welcome home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's been a difficult year. At times, we've probably felt intense loneliness. Money may have been tight, job loss, relationships strained, wondering when this is ever going to end. And some of us may have slipped into bad habits. We may have done things we wish we would have never done. God, we ask that you would forgive us. God, we also ask that by the power and the filling of your Holy Spirit, you would work in all of us, in our hearts, in our minds, and through our friends and other means to draw us back to yourself, that we would see in you the incredible, extravagant love of God that welcomes us home, and that we would preach this message to ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.